Idolatry will lead to a whole different life. Idolatry will lead you into running away from your core convictions, changing your core convictions. Idolatry will promise freedom, but always deliver slavery. Now, John is finishing his book by summarizing really the whole book and also just assuring us again. He's going to assure us again before we get to verse 21 of guard yourself from idols. He's going to assure us again with three things. We know this. We know this and we know this. And so first we know is verse 18. If you have your Bible, I'd love for you to look at it with me. If you need a Bible, there should be some underneath you or in front of you in the, the seats underneath you. 1 John 5, verse 18. The first I know. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. So we know that everyone born of God does not practice sinning, and Jesus keeps them. I paraphrase it that way because <laughs> you look at that phrase, does not sin, and you're like, well, wait a minute. Where have we been, John? What does this mean? Because it doesn't go in, 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 like, doesn't work with First John 1. You said, if we say we have no sin, we're liars. Say, we must say that we have sin. And we also say, when we sin, we confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all, run, all righteousness. So what does it mean, does not sin? Well, that means we have to just unpeel back a little bit. What verb tense is John using in the ritual language? And he's using this present tense, which means sinning continuously that this is a pattern of life. And so thinking about that, that means it's, it's constant sinning. It's without a break sinning. But he's saying that's not those who are born of God. For those born of God, sin is no longer the pattern of their life. That's what he's saying. We do not keep practicing sinning. And we know those who are born of God, we are kept by Jesus the best way to interpret the one who is born of God there is that's Jesus. Jesus keeps us. Jesus is the one who holds us. So you got to go back to John as, as the book of the gospel of John to remember some of what first John is saying. And, and back in the gospel of John, Jesus said this in John 17, 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that you may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction so that the scripture may be fulfilled. 1 Peter 1.5 says this way. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Jude 1.24 says, now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. Everyone that is born of God, Jesus will hold fast. He keeps us and we will never not be his. There's never a future for you where you're not Jesus's. There's not a future where it's possible where you walk away from him and he's like, no, no, no. Uh, yeah, it's okay. I had you. I was protecting you. But just do whatever you want. If you're in Christ, if he's given you a new heart, there's never not a future with him in it. And with you in him, united to him. 
He keeps us. He holds us. And then it says, and the evil one does not touch us. Now, again, there's a lot we have to look at in the words of, of this section. It's so quick. But what touch here means, it has the idea of grabbing hold of something with the intent to harm. One commentator writes it this way. He is well kept whom Christ keeps. The enemy of souls cannot lay hold of him. He assaults but cannot seize. So the enemy may harass us, but he can't take us. So, so we can't press the word touch too far. Because you've got to think about what else does scripture say. Because touch here can't include uh, that, that the enemy can't harass us or attack us or lie to us or, or tempt us, that there's going to be attack and influence from Satan. You may be born of God. No, let me say that differently. You are born of God if you're in Christ, and you may receive attack and influence from the enemy. You may. I think about it. What I'm just trying to say is what First Peter says. Be so reminded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow, fellow believers throughout the world. Ephesians 6, the beginning of the full armor. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle, our wrestle, think like Greco-Roman wrestling, it's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. The enemy can't take you, but the enemy is going to harass you. 2 Corinthians 10, again, for although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ, and we're ready to punish any disobedience once your obedience is complete. So, to be clear, praying about cultivating deep friendships and just understanding one another, our fights aren't with one another. Your fight isn't with your spouse. Your fights aren't with your kids. Your real wrestling, fighting, warring against is not your fellow brothers and sisters, but the enemy who wants to devour you, that wants to eat you up, that wants to attack you, wants to harass you. Our fight is with the devil and his demons and lies and false teaching and wolves. That's what our fight is. So let's be clear with the touch, the evil one can't touch you. Satan can't rob your salvation. Satan can't own you if you're in Christ. Satan can't separate you from the love of the Father for you. But the enemy can harass, attack, lie, and tempt. He can. And now I know some of you are objecting probably on multiple levels, but some of us uh, are saying this is a bit too much. Is this a bit too much? Is this preacher going to grab a sports coat from under this pulpit and start throwing people down? Is that where we're headed? Uh, 
I don't know, come up here, we'll see. I'm just kidding. Uh, no, that's not where we are heading. But we are going to honestly address spiritual warfare. We will. But for us, many of us who grew up are so formed by a naturalism, a secular humanism that says there's no God, humanity exists for itself. Like this is hard to grasp with. When you've been so formed by naturalism, it says there's nothing beyond the world that you can see, nothing uh, exists beyond what you can touch and feel and observe, then we've just made this world completely flat and denied any transcendence. The reality that there is the spiritual forces that there's invisible spiritual realities all around us. And I know you're objecting, but like, oh, but I've never seen it. Let me think about how, how I can prove this. Or, or, or just maybe just this, I don't even think about it, I don't worry about it because I believe that this world is closed and there's nothing beyond what I can see or touch or hear. That's why when we discuss spiritual warfare, you feel unnerved, or maybe a little anxious, because naturalism has molded us into thinking of this world being all that there is. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans 12 that he doesn't want, that we wouldn't be molded by the thinking of this idolatrous age, but we'd be conformed to think, to understand, to see the world biblically because the bible speaks very differently it says there's real sport, spiritual warfare it gives many accounts and then it gives exhortation on it but why why talk about this why lean into this because i want you to be equipped to fight with truth and authority if you believe that the, the any evil one can't touch you means that there's never going to be any spiritual warfare in your life, then we're setting you up for failure to get blasted by the enemy and be like, oh, that's just a casualty, don't worry about it. Really, you, you, probably it's your faith because if you, if you would have believed more, then the enemy wouldn't have attacked you because really there's no enemy and you, this is your fault. We set you up to get crushed by the enemy and then to blame you for it. And I'm saying, no, I want you to be equipped to fight with truth and authority, which means at least this, believe your identity in Christ rather than lies of the enemy. Anchor yourself to who Jesus has made you, who he's called you, what he's done in you that says, now I'm a beloved son and daughter. Now I'm forgiven. Now I am set free. Now I've been cleansed of all the defiling sins that I've done and that's been done against me. I'm new. I'm in Christ and my future is secure. I'm going to see him forever. I'm going to root myself in that. And not the lies that I'm dirty, I'm gross, I'm worthless, you're, you're filthy, no one loves you. It'd be better to leave your family than to stay with them because you're so destructive. All these lies. We say, no, we're going to fight the lies from the enemy with the truth of God's word. Which not only means reactive, that kind of shield of faith that we're going to believe this and the fiery lies of the enemy are going to be extinguished on our shield. But also we're going to fight proactively with the word. We're actually going to come at the enemy with the sword, with God's word, and say, no, this is the truth. This is what you say, but this is what Jesus says. This is what you say about my Jesus, but this is who Jesus is. Like, we're in a fight 
using the word of God and believe the truth of the gospel. Three, it means we're going to rebuke the enemy to leave in Jesus' name. That what happened in Luke 17 when Jesus commissioned the 72 with the authority also happens to us as disciples of Jesus ever since for the last 2,000 years. You've been given the authority of Christ to crush scorpions. And that's not literal scorpions. And it's also not... I don't need to go there. It is the enemy. That's who it is. You've been given the authority to say, in Jesus' name, leave my family alone. You've been given the authority to, to wield that authority to set captives free. By God's grace, we've seen many people freed from demonic oppression at our mother church, the paradox, and at our church. Lies turned from, truth believed, bitterness turned from, forgiveness extended, demons harassing, and then demons being cast off. Why? Because we have a real enemy, and he's a real threat, and we're actually going to deal with it. And if you feel stuck, if you feel like you need help, number four, seek pastoral prayer and help. If that's you this morning, then when we pray at the end, we ask you to come forward in prayer, come forward and we'll pray for you. If you feel stuck in the lies, if you feel stuck with this vague sense of condemnation where the evil one is trying to shame you and give you uh, just a cloud of ambiguous shame, that's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts specifically. And so if that's what you're feeling, then come forward. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to help you. We'd love to see you set free. Why? So that you can love, care for, and serve. So that you can be a blessing. So that you can walk joyfully with Jesus and not be under oppression and bondage. We want you to be free. So if you're in Christ, know this. The evil one will attack you. Jesus will protect your salvation. The devil hates us. The Father loves us. The enemy harasses us. God holds on to us. The enemy wants to conform, mold you into another idolater, but God is conforming you into the image of his son. That's what we know. That's what we know. And what else do we know? Verse 19, we know that we are of God and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. Again, the word world here means this idolatrous age. That's how John typically uses it. And Ephesians 2 states that before Jesus saved us, we were following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Under the sway of the evil in this whole idolatrous age. So, I mean, how can you even imagine? How can I help you imagine what it is? What is an idolatrous age? Well, think about everyone under the influence of the evil one. Under the influence, under the rule of the evil one, what would that look like? Well, John Calvin said, the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is from his mother's womb, expert in inventing idols. So if you think about all of us on an individual level, uh, a perpetual idol factory machine, 
And then we start getting together and we start creating culture. We start creating artifacts and things that we enjoy together. And all those idols are just abounding in our lives, in our hearts, and the people around us. That's what it looks like to be under the influence of the evil one and being caught up in this idolatrous age. The evil one is leading this age to bow down to every idol imaginable. And we're like Paul in Athens saying like, there's, there's so many idols here. Idols all around us. It's the new paganism where it's just a buffet of idols. But then Paul goes on to say, but this one, this is the true God. Let me tell you about the true God. And that's what John is doing, leading us to the truth, away from idols to the one true God, and that's verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. And then he uses this, this phrase, true one, interchangeably for the Father and the Son, so that that we may know the true one, the Father. We are in the true one, that is in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. This is exactly what Jesus said when he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. There's one true God. You're not in a world where you're just given only the buffet of idols. There's actually one true God One who is eternal life itself. There's one. And what he says is that we know that we're in him. That we're united to Jesus. And so he's assuring us uh, with, with all that he's set up to this point in 1 John. He's just assuring us again before he ends. You who have been born of God will not keep practicing sinning. You will love one another. You will believe Jesus is who he says he is. You'll be held to the end. You'll be cared for because you are in Jesus Christ, united to him. That every other God is a counterfeit, is an idol, is going to overpromise and underdeliver. Is going to offer you freedom. With end up, you're going to be a slave to it. But John is saying, you don't have to stay there. You don't have to stay there. You don't have to stay a slave to your idols. There's one who is true. There's one who is love, as he said in 1 John 4. There's one who gave his son to rescue you from your idolatry. There's one who has destroyed the works of the devil and is named Jesus, and he's not going to use you. He's not going to oppress you. He's not going to enslave you. He's going to set you free so that you become more and more and more and more loving like the Father is. Like that's what he's doing in you. But if there's a true God, there are also false gods. So buckle up. Verse 21. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Again, this is what the 10th time that he said little children, this term of endearment to communicate his 
love for these people, that he saw them in a fatherly way at his end of his life. He's at the end of his life, and he just wants them to know uh, how much he loves them, how much the father loves them, and he's going to address them as these dear, beloved sons and daughters. Remember, you're loved by the father, so guard yourselves from idols. Now, let's get a little technical, okay? What is an idol? Tim Keller says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And then Martin Luther said that behind every sin is an idol, and behind every idol is a disbelief in the gospel. We don't just have sinful actions and sinful words. We also have false worship. We love the wrong gods. And we have lies we believe, and we disbelieve the gospel. So in line with, let's just stick with what John's saying, okay? Because just the word idols can open up a can of worms. Let the text guide us, and then we'll go from there. And so what what is John communicating with idols within this whole context of this book and what he's been saying up to this point? Well, connected to the theme of his book, it would be folks who claim to be Christians but don't believe the truth about Jesus. They do not obey God's commands. They do not love others. That's what he's been saying repeatedly, that Christians believe Jesus is fully God and fully man, that Jesus died in our place for our sins. He was our atoning sacrifice. And the Christians also love others. And also Christians obey God's command. Perfectly? No, but we're growing. We keep growing. But this idolatry is the opposite. They've created a false religion. They say it's still probably Christianity, but it's created by man, not received from Jesus, not received from the apostles. They're embracing a Christianity that allows you to deny the truth about Jesus, and that is idolatry. No matter if you call it Christian or not, if it embraces a Christianity that you can deny Jesus, that is idolatry. This is the same with modern folks who have left the church, left Jesus, and now are turning around to evangelize Christians to also bail on Jesus and his word. This is what John is speaking to. That guard yourself from idols. Don't get caught up in what these false teachers are telling you. Don't get caught up in what they're communicating. Don't get caught up in what they're promising to you because it's lies. It's garbage, as the prophets of the Old Testament would tell us. Excrement. That's what idols are. Why give yourself to poo when you have Jesus? I thought I'd get a little more reaction from the kids on that one. No. That's why I committed to it. It's all right. You'll get it on the way home. Uh, As in, they'll say it aloud to you. Sorry. Uh, But that's what it is. Idolatry is very sneaky because it's like anesthesia. It numbs you to reality. And one of the symptoms of idolatry is that you became less and less sensitive to God's word. 
and less sensitive to the truth of God's word and more reliance on the world's perspective about how to live. But we know we are of God, so we're going to not volunteer for slavery and walk away from Jesus. We'll know and fight the idols in our hearts. And let me just pause there. If you're not a Christian, this is what Jesus is inviting you to, inviting you to let go of the idols that don't actually serve you, that are vain, empty, worthless, and inviting you to know, see the one true God, know the one who can actually give life, the one who promises life and is actually the himself life and will give you life, forgiveness for your sins, will give you a new heart, will give you a new community, and will give you a certain future where you will be more enamored with Jesus than anything else for all eternity and never be bored because you'll be dazzled by his beauty and grace. So Jesus is inviting you to turn, turn your worship from counterfeit gods to the one true God. So this, this is for all of us, Christian, non-Christian, to really wrestle with, to think through, how can we know and fight our idols? How can we identify our idols? Well, let's talk about it. I'm just going to give you a few. That's not true. There's probably 12 here for you to wrestle with and think through. Now, before I go down this road, this is not a personality test for the goal of self-awareness. This is a helpful insight to help you identify your false worship and turn it to Jesus. Okay. Power idolatry. Life only has meaning, I only have worth if I have power and influence over others. This is why we start talking about idolatry and people think about little uh, uh, graven images, little wood statues that someone's carved and put. It's like, no, I mean, yes, in different cultures. In our culture, it's invisible things that we worship in our hearts. And so first one being an idol of power, what about approval? What if this you, life only has meaning, I only have worth if I'm loved and respected by blank. Comfort. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I have this kind of pleasure experience, a particular quality of life. So you'll see that an idol is anything that we love more than God, that we uh, absorbs our imagination more than God, the thing that we bank our hope, our meaning on. Control. Idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I, oh, that's comfort. If I'm able to get mastery over my life in the area of blank. Helping idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if people are dependent on me and need me. Dependence. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if someone is there to protect me and keep me safe. Are you feeling this? Are you tracking with me? It should get a little heavier in this room. Because we're talking about false gods. But also, I want you to know so you'll fight them. Independence, idolatry, life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm completely free from obligations or responsibilities to take care of someone. 
completely free. Work. Life only has meaning, I only have worth if I'm highly productive and getting a lot done. Achievement. Only if I'm being recognized for my accomplishments and I'm excelling in my work. Materialism. Only if I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, and very nice possessions. Religion. Can religion be an idol? Yes. Only if I'm adhering to my religion's moral codes and accomplished in its activities. Individual person. Life only has meaning, I only have worth if this person, this one person is in my life and happy to be there and are happy with me. If they're not happy with me, I'm a mess, I'm chaotic, I can't handle it. Why? Because I put all of my meaning and my significance in this one person. Irreligion. Life only has meaning, I only have worth if I feel I am totally independent of organized religion and living by a self-made morality. Racial culture. Cultural Culture, it should be cultural, idolatry. Life only has meaning, I only have worth if my race and culture is ascendant and recognized as superior. Entering, this can happen so easily in our family, just in churches. Life only has meaning, I only have worth if a particular social grouping or professional grouping or other group lets me in. Family, idolatry. Can you worship your family? Can good things become gods? Yes. I mean, uh, I can't even think. The major networks are, are making money on you with fam family idolatry. Making money with parenthood and this is us saying, hey, worship this idol. Like what's, what's good about it is like, hey, there, there's some family dynamics. This is exciting. They're actually like trying to work as a family. But you keep going. It's like, well, family without Jesus becomes the new God. And so we're going to worship it. Family idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if my children and where my parents are happy and happy with me. Relationship idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if Mr. or Miss Wright is in love with me. Suffering. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm hurting in a problem. Only then do I feel worthy of love or able to deal with guilt. Ideology. Two more. Life only has meaning, I only have worth if my political or social cause is making progress and ascending influence or power and image. Only if I have a particular kind of look or body image. So why, why slowly walk through those with you? Because the command is so big. I would make the argument that this last phrase of John make sense of the whole book for us to start back over and know, oh, this is how he's going to end. This is how he's conclude is going to give insight into the whole book. He's saying, guard yourselves, keep yourselves from idols. Acknowledge them know what's in your heart and fight them and turn from them. They're not worthy of your sacrificial action. They're not worthy of your affection and devotion. They're not worthy you giving your life over to them. They're dumb. They're useless. Uh, they're worthless. They're excrement. Don't give your life for them. They didn't die for you. They don't live for you. Don't give your life for them. I'm going to go at it a different way. 
and talk about what, what some people talk about the four big idols in our culture. It's the first four we sought out. If you seek power, this is how to try to make sense of what's going inside of you. If you seek power, success, winning influence, your greatest nightmare is probably humiliation. That you're terrified of being humiliated. Why? Because you've got to have the success. You've got to look as a success. People around you often feel used. Why? Because you're using them to get more power. Instead of loving people and using things, you're using people and loving things. So they feel used by you. Your problem emotion probably is anger. Because you've got to hold on to that power. And anyone that threatens that is going to get your wrath. How about the second one? If you seek approval, things like fear of man is what we're talking about. Affirmation, love, relationships. Your greatest nightmare is probably rejection. To be rejected by something, uh, if this is the God that you worship, then you'll probably come into a social setting very nervous, unsure, scared what people think. You might walk away from a conversation, uh, always rehearsing how that went. How did that go? Are they okay with me? Do they still like me? Did I say something wrong? Why? Because we're so concerned, controlled by this God that we're scared inordinately about rejection. People often around you feel smothered and your problem might be cowardice. Why? Guard yourselves from idols. Let's keep going. If you seek control, controls your God. If controls your idol, your greatest nightmare is probably uncertainty. Certainty about where you're at currently, uncertain about the future, what might happen, always vigilantly searching the horizon for what might be the next threat. People around you often feel used. Uh, and you're probably, your problem emotions probably worry, anxious, always thinking about what might be, what's going to happen, what could happen. If you seek comfort, that privacy, that lack of stress, that freedom of any obligations, your greatest nightmare is going to be stress and demands. People around you often feel neglected. When you're ministering to people, actually the idea of ministering feels like a burden to you. It's like, oh, I actually have to get into the weeds with these people and stuck with these people and walk alongside these people and got to be patient with these people. This feels like a burden. Why? Because comfort is primary. And boredom's most likely your problem emotion. John says, keep yourselves from idols. To guard yourself. If you're worshiping an idol now, you're to turn. Turn from it. Like I've tried to say so many times, your worship is unceasing. It's always going out of you. The question is, where is it going? And if it's not directed at Jesus right now, it is. It's no neutrality. You're not in part just sitting. Your worship is going somewhere. If it's not Jesus, then it's going to be an idol. 
most likely one of these. It's going to be worshiping, giving your life for one of these things. And so turn now your worship by uh, uh, repenting and believing the good news and believing who Jesus is, that he's the true God. He's eternal life. He is the one hope, the only one that can give you that real meaning and significance. Your life is worthy because you're united to Christ. So that, that is where you need to turn this morning. G.K. Bill says that we become what we worship to our own ruin or restoration. And with the Bible describing idols as vain, worthless, empty, lifeless, but Jesus being the true God, then which do you want to become? Who do you want to become like? And now another power-hungry person that's riddled with this idol of power and, and just using people all the time? Is that what you want to become like? Is that how you imagine your future? Do you want to be riddled with fear of men where you can never like engage with people and just sit and confidently be able to communicate with them because you're so worried about if they love you or they don't love you? Or you're always anxious and worried about the future because you're so riddled with love for control that, that you're always, ah, is this going to be okay? Is this going to be okay? It, it, what, what happens if this happens? What am I going to do? Or do you want to be free and loving like Jesus? Do you want to be buoyantly joyful like Jesus? Do you want to radiate life with Jesus? Do you want to be able to step in into people's lives and serve them with wise love, with meaningful engagement? To be able to show up and actually be present with people and not so consumed with our idolatry that it affects every relationship we're in. You become what you worship to your own ruin or restoration. Jesus or idols, which one are you going to choose? When I'd say if you are a Christian, because we know we are in the true God, we guard ourselves from idols. That's the big idea of this text. Because of who we know because of who we are now, we know who we are now, we're going to fight, guard against, not be easily captivated by the enemy and his schemes and led into all sorts of idolatry. We're actually going to know who Jesus is, know who we are in Christ, know that he protects us, and we're going to trust him and become like him and guard ourselves from idols. Why? this is what the Father has for us. He so passionately loves you that it's grace to you to pull the idols out of your tight, clenched fist. It's a loving for him to say, this is to your ruin. This will leave you empty. This is promising so much, but it's going to be vanity. But here's the truth my son. Look to him. Trust him. Adore him. Follow him. Because of what we know, we're going to guard ourselves from idols. I'm going to pray for that. Father, I pray you would do that in us. I ask that we would respond and fight 
and not just sit on these things that we can see and know and learn and, and even be self-aware of like, this is what's going on inside of me that's helpful. But Lord, I, I know that just simple clarity doesn't equate to change. So would it go beyond clarity? Would it move towards repentance? Would you convict by your spirit and lead us by your grace into adoring the one true God, Jesus? And may it end in rapturous joy to, to see you, to be in your presence is to know joy. It's delightful. It's worshipful. It's freeing. It's beautiful, Lord. And so I pray that you would free us this morning. Those that don't know you, that are under the sway of the evil one, I pray that you would rescue them. Give them new hearts. Woo them to yourself. For those that do know you, if there is idols in their heart, I pray that they would turn from them, forsake them, get rid of them, and turn to you this morning. And as we turn to you, we become more and more like you. As we worship you this morning, this is your ordinary means of grace to transform us, to change us. As we behold you, see you, praise you, confess to you who you are and thank you, Lord, you're making us more and more into you, more like you, more holy and loving, gracious and just, patient and faithful. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.